So uh, tonight helps us to think through uh, the sermon title there, A Right Response to Difficult Days. A Right Response to Difficult Days. So Habakkuk chapter 3, if you would, stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's word. Uh, Kind of a a setup, if you will. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 in this particular chapter kind of are a a convocation of sorts, uh, kind of drawing together uh, Habakkuk's mind to pray. And then in verses 3 through 15 is that prayer. And so to kind of help set the stage for tonight and to help us as we think through God's word together, we're just going to read verses 1 and 2, and then we'll make our way through the remainder of the passage together. So this is the word of the Lord, and let's uh, listen closely as we read it. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigonoth. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. This is God's word to his people, and we should thank him and praise him that we can read it together. Let's pray tonight. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have now to consider your word together and to think about what it means for us and to earnestly uh, seek uh, to do your will. When we think uh, tonight of responding rightly in uh, difficult days, seems more apt than we could have planned for if we had intentionally sat back years ago and thought about what we might need tonight. And so I pray that you would help us as we consider your word to, to, to just draw near to it and, and, and to listen closely uh, to what your word has to say for us. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. I know that uh, some people sitting in this room are uh, people watchers. Um, I enjoy seeing and watching people, um, but I kind of take on the the life watcher approach. Um, I I think it's entertaining to watch people and how they react to things. I think it's fascinating to watch people as they interact with others, um, mainly because more often than not, you learn a lot just by the way people in general treat those around them, especially um, watching how people treat others who bring them absolutely no benefit is a great way to learn um, a lot about who people are. And But I, I prefer, if at all possible, um, to be able to watch like the span of someone's life and how they develop and how they mature, mainly because it's not really fair to judge someone or to make a decision about who someone is based on one single interaction. I know that's very popular in our culture is to just you, you see someone interact with someone one time and you know who they are and you have them down to a T and you know everything about them. Uh, that's just simply not true. And I, I enjoy being able to watch as people develop and, and change and, and grow over time. I think um, really this has been born out of doing college ministry. I'm very lucky if I get to pastor students for 18 to 24 months um, consistently. Um, a lot of students uh, move in and move out or uh, move in and get married and move out, which is totally fine and exciting, and we want to support them and be uh, alongside of that. But to be able to watch people as they grow and develop and, and change, uh, there's a lot that happens, and we see it happen in kind of that 
first year. And I always say this, too, when, I, when talking about watching people develop. It's this. The one thing that I'm most intrigued by is how people respond to difficult things happening. Because bad things are always going to happen. I think we oftentimes forget that we live in a world affected by and cursed by sin. And so we're guaranteed that bad things are going to happen. And more often than not, how you respond to difficult things says more about who you are and what you believe than actually experiencing the difficult thing. I know that may seem strange, but how you respond to... I've, I've watched as students have been uh, delivered devastating and terrible news and have rose to the occasion. And I've watched students have devastating and terrible things happen to them and uh, seemingly will away, only to come back stronger than ever. And realistically... I think especially as we think about um, our lives and what sits in front of us and some of the difficult things that we'll experience in our lives and, and some of the, the trials and challenges that we'll face, we're constantly looking for people to give us inspiration and hope to face those difficult things that we know are coming at some point. And I think a lot of times we turn to the wrong illustrations, the wrong people, the kind of the pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps people who just kind of grit and grind out their response to difficult things. But God's word is filled time and time again. In fact, it's chock full of illustrations of people who have terrible things that happen to them, yet manage to rest in, trust in God, and persevere, and in Pauline language, press on towards the prize of the high calling that is found in Christ Jesus. One only need to think of the illustration of Joseph. Joseph would be an excellent illustration of this. Um, has... Uh, is the favorite child, uh, has some crazy dreams, and as any uh, young person is prone to do, uh, opens his mouth and runs his mouth about how one day his brothers are going to bow down and worship him, and how even his uh, mother and father will worship him, and basically um, is told, hey, shut up. And then is later uh, thrown in a pit and sold into slavery, and yet Joseph continues to make conscious decisions that he's going to honor the Lord in spite of the difficult things that he faces. And so I'm just, I find myself reminding myself, um, maybe, just maybe, I should crack open God's word and look at the illustrations he provides for me of how to respond in difficult days. I think Habakkuk does an excellent job of teaching us, even when we get news that we don't like and is not the answer that we expected or wanted, how we can rightly respond to it. And I think he does this by showing us that the right response to difficult days always begins with prayer. Um, I think far too often we try to rush into fix-it mode. We become Bob the Builder. Can he fix it? Yes, he can. There, just a flash to the past right there. Like, we think... Uh, we can just transform this situation, or if I just work hard enough, I will. And, and Habakkuk shows us that he gets an answer he doesn't like. He's in a situation he doesn't like. He's in a setting he doesn't like. He doesn't like what's coming at him. And his response, rather than balking and pushing back against God, is to fall down and pray and ask God for help. And he does this three specific ways. He prays in three specific ways. Number one, he prays for deliverance. 
Look back at verse number one. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigenaz. Oh, Lord, I've heard your speech and was afraid. Oh, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Uh, Habakkuk starts out by saying, I've heard what you have to say, and I'm terrified. Sometimes the answers to our prayers are, are, are answers to our questions are answers that we don't like. Why is there evil in the world? Because Adam and Eve uh, forfeited their right to live in a sinless world by making a conscious decision to go in the opposite direction of what God had said. One, through passivity, Adam, by not standing up and saying, this is not what God said. So the man through passivity and the woman through not clearly thinking about what God had said. So through passivity and open, honest rebellion against God, sin it enters into the world, and we don't like it. I mean, think about it. We do not like it. We want to complain. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. Right. And, and just because we don't like the answer doesn't mean that we get to push back or argue. Uh, we live in an argumentative culture. You don't like what the teacher says, you argue about it. You don't like the grade you got, you argue about it. I remember grading a paper, first year teaching, and I, I thought that I was pretty gracious and pretty kind. And the student got a 98 out of 100 on the paper. And I did not, like, I, I was a very, when I started, and this probably contributed to some of the places where I currently live as a, a, as a grader, I, I was pretty kind and pretty gracious about spelling and, and grammar mistakes and things like that. Just get to, let's get to the content, right? That was my frustration in college. I don't care about grammar and formatting and all those things. I want to know, can you argue? And so this student got a 98 on the paper and came back to argue with me about the two points that had been taken off, to which I responded, um, I can go back through and grade it. I guarantee you will not get 100 and you will not get a 98. And she was at that point pacified by the situation. But we live in an argumentative culture. We get an answer we don't like. We're told something by authority we don't like. We're told we got to do something that we don't like. And boom, we are arguing. And you're like, no, David, that's not true. Boom, I just proved that we live in an argumentative culture. And if you still don't believe me after arguing with me, we'll just open any one of the people's in here's Facebook account or Twitter account. Well, it's not open Twitter. That's an angry, angry place. Uh, and even Instagram, they're like, it's just a picture, like quit arguing. And they're just in the comments. They're not even arguing about what is there. It's just ridiculous. We live in such an argumentative, rebellious pushback against what anybody in authority has to say about anything. And that doesn't always mean that there doesn't come times because somebody will walk out of here and say, David Botts says you just got to submit to everybody in authority and follow everything they say. So David Botts is for mask mandates. He's for uh mandatory vaccines he's for uh abortion he's for uh the the i mean it's just ridiculous what people will say that you say i'm not saying that we just blindly submit but what i am saying is habakkuk models for us god as the ultimate authority spoke and rather than saying god you don't get to speak habakkuk says i'm dropping on my knees i'm praying because guess what the last phrase in this verse tells us a whole lot about what Habakkuk understood was coming. And he says this, in wrath, remember mercy. So you're about to pour out judgment and wrath on the nation of Judah. God, please remember that you are merciful. 
you're going to give us everything that we deserve. And we deserve it. But please remember that you're merciful. Um, this harkens back to the small child trying to argue their way out of a, a corrective, an attitude corrective assignment that comes from a parent. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, that's the politically correct way to talk about um, getting your uh, hind end brought back into correction. You're just out of alignment, and there needs to be an attitude adjustment. And you think, hey, these parents have been merciful before, so let's plead on mercy. Mom, you're so merciful. Dad, have you lost weight? Like, help us. Don't. I know you're going to pour out a wrath. I was busted. You got me dead to rights. But please, in this moment, show some mercy. And so he continues on. And what does he do? He point, in praying for deliverance, he points to the delivering God. Look at verse 3. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand and there his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence and fever followed at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. Now you read this and you go, what? So we need to pay attention. We need to dig in. we got to study. We've got to look at this go, what is Habakkuk saying? God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. If you were to study the Old Testament and, and study how uh, different places are referred to, Mount Paran is um, is a way of looking back. It's a, a, a nickname, if you will, for Sinai. Basically, Habakkuk is saying, let's just pause here for a second and let's remember how God led the nation of Israel out of Egypt into Sinai. Now, remember... For those of you who Bible students who will say, well, Sinai wasn't the destination, right? Sinai wasn't the destination. The promised land was the destination. They got into Sinai. They did what every good Southern Baptist group does. They formed a committee and sent them in to spy out the land. And as every good Southern Baptist committee comes back out, 10 said, this land is filled with giants, will be slaughtered. And two were like, let's take the hill. There's grapes the size of watermelons, and we don't even know what a grape is. Like, let's just go take it. And if you remember, as a result of that, they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years, and Joshua and Caleb get to go into the promised land, and the rest of those turkeys die out in the desert. But what Habakkuk is doing here, he's pointing to God and who he is. Look at verse, the back half of verse 3. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand, and there his power was hidden. Habakkuk is the ultimate hype man in the, cornering, he, in the corner of the boxing ring. He's saying, don't you remember this guy? He's the heavyweight champion of the world. He floats like a butterfly. He stings like a bee. There ain't no man who's as bad as he. That's his prayer. I'm praying for the one who has delivered to do it again. Just do it again. Show all these turkeys that, who you are. Show all of them. Just come here and do it again. We're in a bad spot. Deliver us again. We're in a terrible situation. Deliver us again. 
We've never seen anything like this. Deliver us again. He drops to his knees and says, deliver us again. And I'm asking tonight as Christians, why are we not on our knees going, God, we've never been here before. Deliver us again. We've never seen a worldwide pandemic. We've never seen race riots this bad. We've never seen racial tension this bad. We've never seen police officers mistreated this poorly. We've never seen a land that was divided as this. But we know that you're a delivering God. We know that you can deliver us. Deliver us. Oh, to God that a group of college students would get on their knees and say, God, deliver us. Deliver us from the wickedness that infiltrates our college campuses. The vile and filth and the, the blasphemy that comes from, from men's mouths as they try to indoctrinate people and teach them that God doesn't exist and that he's never existed and that it's a fairy tale and a farce to believe in something like that. And you must be the dumbest person on the face of the planet to believe that God exists. Oh, God, deliver us from these people. No, what are we doing? We're digging in. We're fighting fire with fire. I love the Old Testament prophets. Those dudes were bad men of Guinness. They were bad dudes. You can go to Mount Carmel. Here's a prophet who's like, yeah, we'll fight fire with fire. You fight fire with your man-made fire, your man-made philosophies, and your man-made religion, and I'll sit over here and I'll fight your fire with holy fire from on high. So Elijah sits around and waits as these prophets of Baal make this altar, and they're trying to get Baal to light it. And then Elijah does what any good Southern Baptist prophet does. He starts to taunt them and, and, and say, maybe he's asleep. Yell a little louder. Cut yourself a little deeper. Do something a little bit more entertaining. Nothing happens. And Elijah says, hey, maybe he's in the restroom. Everybody's like, the Bible is a clean and nice book. And it never says anything bad. Elijah the prophet is like, maybe your God is in the bathroom. And every fifth grade mom is like, don't share that story with our kids. And that's what's happening. Elijah sits and waits. He's like, all right, my turn. Y'all couldn't light that, and I don't want this to be a fluke, so let's get some water and pour it on this altar. More. 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 More water. There it sits. This thing is soaked. You could have shot a missile through it. It would have lit on fire. And what does Elijah do? Does he dance? Does he try and get filled with the Holy Spirit? Speak in tongues over it? Whisper, do some religious voodoo over top of it? No, what he does is he falls on his knees and goes, God, deliver us. Deliver us. Show these pagan worshipers who you are. And what happens? Boom! The altar is immediately gone. Fire from heaven falls and is incinerated. And there sits the altar no more. Why? Because Elijah's a praying man. He goes, I'm done trying to do this on my own. I can't do it on my own. They, they prove that they can't, you can't do it on your own. So I'm going to fall on my knees and ask you to deliver us. So Habakkuk starts with a prayer for deliverance. And I would ask you this tonight. When life is difficult, who do you turn to for deliverance? Your soon-to-be or hope-to-be or wish that they might become one day spouse, 
your friend a bottle, a pill, a food, a video game, a TV show, some music, a sexual appetite that just removes the pain for a little bit and allows you to get on, where are you turning to for deliverance? And then ask yourself this tonight. Am I too quick to just ultimately trust in myself? Like, I got this. God, you got bigger stuff, and I've got this. You got to be very careful because we, we creep into there. So Habakkuk starts with a prayer for deliverance, and then he moves into a prayer for judgment. Look at verse 8. Oh, Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrow. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went and the shining of your glittering spear. No, it's not real popular to talk about God's wrath. We want to talk about God's love. I'm talking about God, your homeboy. Like, it's okay. We all do bad stuff. Sin isn't really that bad. Who cares? Like, it's okay. God is loving and God is kind. God is loving and God is merciful and God is gracious. But God is righteous, holy, and brings an almighty vengeance and wrath to protect that holiness and that righteousness. Habakkuk's like, I know that we deserve to be judged. But make sure you judge the other guys too. Make sure you judge the other guys too. I, I don't like it when my integrity is questioned at all. Now, sometimes I make mistakes. I'm the first to admit it, and I will be the last person working to fix that mistake. But I do not like it when people question my integrity. Especially did not like that phrase that would come out when I, many moons ago, would officiate a sporting event. And some would say, I would hear a voice call out from a bench, hey, make sure to call it both ways. <laughs> well, I have words, son. Because I don't give a rip if you win by 100 or win by 2. I'm here to make sure this is done right and go home. That's the only reason why I'm here. I ain't come here as a closet fan like, yeah. You. I don't care. And if you think I care, you obviously have not been around me much. Because on Judgment Day, nobody gives a rip about who won a quarterfinal in a 1A baseball game. People barely care about that now. Most people shouldn't. I, 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 it grated on me. And yet, if that grates on me, that, that sense of, uh, I'm doing my best here to make sure things are right and fair. How much more confidence should we have that God, who is ultimately righteous and ultimately holy and ultimately sovereign and wise and omniscient as he executes judgment, will get it right in the end? It takes all the pressure off of us. We live for Christ. We trust in Christ. We trust God. And we pray, God, anything I'm missing here, come behind me and clean up. Anything I'm not getting right, 
come behind me and make right. I miss it here. Please help. I, 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 I make the wrong decision. Please help. But God makes sure. I, I think Habakkuk kind of wobbles at this point. Shows his humanity. God, I'm just, I, I just want to make sure. I understand we deserve to be judged by the Babylonians. I deserve that we, I understand that we deserve everything that's coming towards us. But please, 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 please make sure you get the bad guys too. That's a great thing about television most of the time, especially like the soft sitcom or the soft uh, crime show. They always get the bad guys. They always will ride in, rope them up. Great thing about an old Western. Two great things. One, you are given a six shooter, but it fires as much as you want it to. And two, the bad guys always get caught. They always get caught. I remember when you're real young, and I, it just depends on what your family situation was like. My dad loved John Wayne movies, loved uh, Kevin Costner Western films, like all of that stuff. Dennis Quaid, I mean, everything. I, he has ESP. When Dances with Wolves comes on television, it could be on the Oprah Winfrey Network, and somehow he knows that that movie is on. He's like, I don't know, we've never watched Oprah Winfrey Network ever, and we probably will never watch it again, but Dances with Wolves is on, so we're watching this. And I remember being a little kid and sitting on the couch and watching these movies, just being terrified, like, are they going to get the bad guys? And, of course, my dad is sitting there not nervous at all because he's seen this movie 300 million times and knows there's one universal truth. They're always going to get the bad guys. Oh, to have that kind of confidence again in God. I think a lot of us, our confidence in God has been shaken over the, 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 the past few months. We know and we say he's sovereign. We know and he say that he, he's omnipresent. He's, he's omnipotent. He's omniscient. We, we get it. We say it, but we don't believe it. you you, you got to get to a point where you trust him again. I think tonight will be a great time to fall on your knees and say, God, I'm trusting that your judgment is all wise and all perfect. And I'm going to trust you to make everything right in the end. Are, are, are you even concerned about this? If God is going to make everything right in the end, it should motivate the way that we think about the people around us. If God is really going to make everything right in the end, then the person that I stand by at work or sit next to or work uh, work closely with or, or the person that I might be in a class with or, or teamed up with in a lab this fall or or, or my friend or, or, or just the person that I come in contact every day, you know, when I go in and, and, and you got a favorite spot, you know, you got the, the favorite coffee shop, you got the favorite restaurant, you got and, and you have the same people and you, you build relationships with them. Uh, you, some of you have turned uh, some of the coffee shops here like into Cheers in Boston. They, you walk in like Norm, they're like, Norm, and you're like, hey, what's up? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. That's okay. You know so much about the people who work there, and yet they know little about the God you claim to love. 
high school, you that, hey, we're going to go out, but we're not going to tell anybody that we're dating. That's not how we get to treat God. This wholehearted devotion and love and, and, and overwhelming desire to make him known. And, and then finally, Habakkuk wraps up this portion. I, I love this because he starts with uh, basically a congregation saying, hey, this is where we're going. We're going to pray. He prays. And then next week he closes by singing. Uh, it's, just, it's the ultimate Christian response to difficult days. Terrible stuff's happening. We need to pray. Let's pray. We get done praying. Let's sing. Walking in confidence in who God is. So notice how he closes his prayer. He, he closes with a prayer for victory. Look at verse 12. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered. Well, it might help if you're reading verse 12. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for your salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from the foundation to the neck. You thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses, through the heat of great waters. And then he closes. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Habakkuk closes the section with a prayer for God to be victorious over all things. He puts forward in verses uh, 12 through 15, six declarations about God's dominion over his enemies. Just very quickly, he talks about God marching through the land, trampling the nations, salvation for his people, striking the head of the wicked, thrust through with arrows, and walking through the sea with his horses. Notice the, the confidence in Habakkuk's prayer. He's not like, I kind of hope that you will do this. He says, I know how this ends. You are victorious, and you are worthy of praise and honor and glory. And just when I think that all is lost, you are going to rise, and you are going to kill those who stand in direct opposition to you. Now, we don't like that. We want God cozy and nice and in a box. But people who constantly uh, bear their chest puff with anger towards God and sit in open rebellion to him and decry his name from their lips constantly will pay for the bla what's referred to in the New Testament as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which many theologians, and I think I'm correct here in my assessment and landing, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the continual and ultimate rejection of who God is and what he has done. And that would be why it is considered the ultimate sin. Because it leads, more so than any other, straight to damnation and separation from God. Because how can you constantly hear the message of the gospel and continually rebuff and reject and blaspheme? 
Habakkuk closes this prayer with an unabashed confidence in the God that he serves and loves. Christians would do well to remember that we serve a God who wins in the end. We say it, but I don't think we believe it. We should pray for God's victorious return. We should tell people about Christ's return and the fact that we know who will win in the end. If we know God's coming back, believe me, I've read, I'm trying to dissect how that's going to unfold, and that's another sermon for another time. But one thing that everybody who argues about the end times agrees on is that Christ is coming back. It's like, hey, we can rally around this idea here and find common ground. If we do believe that, it should embolden the confidence with which we pray for God to bring about victory. I know that you're facing difficult days. I know that there are, are, are challenges that we're all facing, some more serious than others, but it doesn't diminish the seriousness of the challenge to you. I think sometimes Christians can be kind of dumb in this area. Someone's facing a difficult time, and we're like, yeah, I know that's difficult, but so-and-so is facing this. It's kind of the ultimate Christian one-upper. It's like, just because the challenge doesn't seem significant to someone else doesn't mean that it's not significant to the person who's facing it. And we're living in days where if we're not careful, we'll walk right by each other to argue about frivolous things and neglect bearing the burdens that each other carry. I think we can all agree that we live in difficult days, but that doesn't mean that we back away from the difficulty of it. That's where Christians get themselves into trouble also. We know we're living in difficult days. Let's press into the reality of it instead of trying to ignore it and hope it goes away. We know that we're going to be in a different status as we live out the coming months. Rather than arguing with one another about the viability of whatever strategy someone who is probably way more qualified than the supposed experts in this camp or that camp or whatever camp you find yourself in, go a little less conversation about that and a whole lot more conversation about you do realize that one day we won't even care about the coronavirus because some of us will be sitting at the feet of Jesus worshiping him forever while others are separated from him forever. We need to be people who point to who our hope is while praying in clear and expectant ways for them. I haven't figured out exactly how we're going to do that this fall, but what I want to do, and I'm hoping our adults will help me tomorrow night as we meet and strategize and plan for the fall, is to come up with a way, a visual reminder to all of us as we come in this place week in and week out, that there are those of us who have lost friends, real lost people that we're trying to see come to know Christ. So that when we enter this place, our heart is pierced by the reality that there sits a board or there sits something that reminds us of the people who don't yet know Christ. I think Brendan tonight was at least 
willing to be honest in front of you. To say, I don't, up until a few moments ago, did not even know this country existed. How many more of us would look at a world map and have no idea where the majority of these countries are, where people are floundering, looking for anyone to bring in any shred or scrap of the Bible? And we're like dealing with all kinds of first world problems. Unwilling to get out of our comfort zone and and give our, our lives. One of my favorite quotes that comes across my desk um, on a revolving screen that kind of pop up throughout the day is, and I'll leave you with this and we'll pray and be done. A theologian said, I'm not so much worried about being successful in this life. I'm more concerned with being successful at things that ultimately don't matter. Let's pray together.